Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. When you found your place, please stand for the reading of God's Word and remain standing for a time of prayer following. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat. But in difficult times, after those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we sure are thankful for your holy word. Lord, thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning I pray that you would speak through Ben. Lord, I pray that you'd soften hearts to receive your message. Lord, I pray if, there anyone, if there's anyone in our midst today, Lord, that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. Father, that today would be the day they would submit and turn their life over to you. Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we start, or as we continue to go through our series, The Last Days, last week we talked about the rapture. We talked about the catching up of the church into heaven to be with the Lord. And we talked about the fact that through the timeline of Scripture, that the rapture sets off a seven-year period of time in Scripture known as the tribulation. So today we're going to talk about the tribulation, but I want you to understand that the tribulation is very extensively spoken of in Revelation. Actually, chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation is about the tribulation. So I'm not going to be able to get in any great detail today, but we are going to hit the high spot so that you can have an overall understanding of what it is. I will say this, if you want a detailed study of the tribulation, when, Pat, or when Brother Tim brings uh, his class, I would ask that you take that. He usually does that on Sunday evenings, and sometimes it can take up to a year for him to get through the book of Revelation, a majority of that being the tribulation. So certainly look out for that. You can go on our website, Upcoming Events, uh, Group Studies, and that's where you can find those sign-ups whenever he has those classes. So we're going to talk about the tribulation today. And I know that during um, the past few years, We've experienced as a society very difficult times, you know, with the COVID crisis and with the political upheaval in our capital and um, wars across our planet, um, famine, uh, communist China rising up and being emboldened, uh, Russia being emboldened. We see all of these things happening across the globe, and it always brings to mind the end. We always think about, could this be the end? Is this really what's been prophesied for so many years? Well, I want to be careful that when you talk about the book of Revelation, and you talk about end-of-time prophecy, that God never gave us anything in Scripture so that we can pinpoint an exact time. 
If we try to get into that cycle of trying to say, well, this has happened and this has happened, so this has got to be next, we're going to mess up every time. Because throughout history, there have been many churches and pastors and theologians who have tried to predict the end of times, and every time they've come up short, every time they've been wrong. There was even a time where there were billboards across the country that said, you know, this is the reasons that uh, Jesus is going to come back in 1988 or 1989 and all this other stuff. Well, 88 and 89 has come and gone, and Jesus hasn't come back yet in his second coming. So don't get stuck in that trap. The overall understanding of prophecy in the Bible is to encourage saints to know that Jesus does win in the end, whenever that is. The Bible teaches us that only the Father knows when the time will come when the church will be raptured. Not even the Son knows. So we don't need to try to figure it out. But what we do need to understand is that it is coming and that we are to be about the business of God. We are to be about the business of sharing the gospel with lost people, um, seeing people healed from their sin... Praise God for Jeremy's grandson because I'm telling you, God is still saving souls. And you may have a loved one who you've been praying for for years and they've never accepted Jesus. Don't quit. Don't quit praying because the Lord Jesus is at work and he is still saving lost people. So today as we look at the tribulation, I want to share a story with you about um, Hannah and me. When we went out west um, shortly after we got married, we took an out west vacation, just me and her. And this was back before kids, so we had a little bit of money, you know, extra money laying around. So we're able to travel a little bit. So we, we head on out, and we end up in this little town called Sheridan, Wyoming. How many of you here have ever been to Sheridan, Wyoming? So there's a couple of you, right? All right, so we just so happened to be in Sheridan. We didn't plan this. We just so happened to be in Sheridan, Wyoming on the 4th of July. So we're sitting at this little diner there in, in town. And when you talk about towns in Wyoming, I mean, there's not much to them. And Sheridan is relatively large for Wyoming, and it would still make Candler look like a metropolitan area. But we were sitting here at this diner, and we asked the waitress, we said, you know, we'd like to see some fireworks tonight. Where would be a good place to go? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah. She said, there's some signs, but you kind of go here, and you, you take a right, you go down this road three or four miles, and you go down this road three or four miles. And she said, eventually, you'll see a big open field, and that's where you want to be. So we say, okay. So we finish eating, and we head out. And uh, it probably took us 20 or 30 minutes to get there. And when we finally got there, she was right. I mean, we pulled into a field, and I bet that field was four or 500 acres, just a massive field. And you could see it was already half full of cars. I'm thinking, where in the world are all these people coming from? I mean, we're in Sheridan, Wyoming, and there was probably, you know, a thousand cars sitting out there. Well, when you park, you actually get, a lot of people had their pickup trucks or whatever, and they'd just lay in the bed of their truck and look up at the sky when the fireworks were going off or whatever. Well, anyways, I'm used to the Asheville City fireworks. You know, you'll get a good 10 or 15-minute show, and then it's over. Well, we're watching these fireworks go off, and all of a sudden, they just start launching like crazy, and we're like, there's the grand finale. And it kept going and going and going and going, and then it started to intensify, and it kept going and going. And I'm like, good grief, we're 25 or 30 minutes into this fireworks show, and they've not let up yet. 45 minutes later... You see the most, I mean, it, it would look like daylight. It was so lit up around that place. And they had the grand finale of the century. I'm telling you, Disney World could not compete with Sheridan, Wyoming. So if you ever get a chance, fly to Wyoming, 4th of July, and go watch that fireworks show. But the whole point of the story is this. There's nothing quite like the grand finale. And the grand finale is always the greatest and the brightest, the most beautiful it's what you anticipate and what you wait on. Well, on the reverse side of that, the tribulation is like the grand finale of judgment upon this earth. 
It is the final and most extensive judgment that sinful mankind is going to see on this planet. Now, we understand that after this life, the ultimate eternal judgment is a place called hell, where the Bible teaches that the fire burns day and night forever and ever. There's no annihilationism. Once people go to hell, they are conscious and awake for all eternity in that place of damnation. But we also understand that there's consequences for sin. We also understand that there is coming a great judgment for Satan, the one who's known as Lucifer, created by God, who rebelled against God in heaven, was cast to the earth. We know that that time is coming as well. The tribulation, the seven-year period following the great rapture, is this grand finale of judgment that's going to befall this earth. And that's what we're going to look at today. So as we think through that, I want us to see three different things about the tribulation. So if you're taking notes, write these down. I think these will be helpful for you as you dive deeper into the tribulation later on. The length of the tribulation. It's important to know that there is a definite time frame here for the tribulation that is very clear in Scripture. The Bible is very specific about how long this period of time is. Now, the reason we don't know when Jesus is coming back to rapture the church is because this time period that we're living in, which is the dispensation of grace, which began at the resurrection of Christ and will end at the rapture, is there's no definite uh, length of time mentioned in Scripture for this period of time we're in. But the coming dispensation, dispensation of judgment, the great tribulation, has a definite period of time, and we're going to look at that. However, that does uh, cost us to have to do some math, which I hate math. You can ask my wife, Hannah. I'm working toward my bachelor's degree, and you know you always have to do the general ed stuff. Well, I'm in this class called quantitative reasoning, and there's no class that I've ever hated more than quantitative reasoning. So I don't like math, but you've got to do some math here for, the, for us to figure this out. So in verses 24 through 27 that was so well read earlier, you're going to see some very definitive time periods and very definitive descriptions of time periods. We'll start in verse 24 there where it says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. Now here we have to understand your people is speaking about the nation of Israel. Daniel is in captivity in Babylon at this time. He was in Judah when the Babylonians came and captured Judah. The Babylonians took back to Babylon the very best of the Israelites. The smartest, the brightest, the most creative, and the most powerful. Daniel happened to be one of those that Babylon took back. So he's serving here in the Babylonian Empire as a very high-ranking official. God has his hands on him, and God is giving him a vision here about his people, Daniel's people, the Hebrew people of Israel. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city, in verse 24, to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Here we have 70 weeks. All scholars are, uh, that, that believe in a premillennial dispensational um, study of the Bible, which is that long, big word that I've been using the last few weeks, but it's basically an understanding of a literal interpretation of the timeline of Revelation. They believe that each week consists of seven years. So we know that there are seven days in a week. So right here he's saying 70 weeks are decreed. So we're going to look at that and we're going to say 77s. Okay, so 77, you say 70 times 7 equals 490 years. So here, what he's saying is, is here is this timeline that God is giving me, and we're going to lay it out, and it's going to consist of a time period of 490 years or 70 weeks. So it's decreed in these 70 weeks 
are exclusively about the nation of Israel. And remember that because that's important. So 70 times 7 equals 490 if you're writing that down. Verse 25, we get into some more specifics about these 70 weeks. Verse 25 says this, Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. We understand that when Babylon came and captured Judah, that they came in and they destroyed what is known as the, the Temple of Solomon. And they took the children of Israel back to Babylon, killed many of them. A few of them were left as a remnant. But anyways, it was destroyed. Well, on through the process of time, God begins to deal with the rulers of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was the empire that took over the Babylonian Empire. So now by succession, the Israelites were first slaves of Babylon, but because of a great war between the Persians and the Babylonians, they then became part of the Persian Empire. Well, the Persians were a little bit more lenient and compassionate toward the Jews for some reason. And we all know that the reason is, is because God was bending the heart of the, of the emperors of the, of the empire of Persia. But anyways, we see in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, you don't have to turn there unless you want to, but Israel began to rebuild the city in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So you're saying, what, what, who cares, right? It's very important because we, we actually know when the decree was made for Israel to be rebuilt following the Babylonian captivity. Did you hear what 25 said? Verse 25 of Daniel 9. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it will be rebuilt. We understand that Artaxerxes, the emperor of Persia, reigned from 464 B.C. to 425 B.C. So 20 years into his reign would have been the year 445 B.C. So now we can begin to tick the clock from the year 445 B.C., understanding the 70 weeks as 490 years. Now there's another stipulation here. The Hebrews did not use a 365-day calendar. They used a 360-day calendar. So when we think about our years, we have to be careful to understand that the Hebrew years were a little bit shorter, which is going to actually, at the end of this 490 years, is going to be the difference of about six or seven years. So if you don't use the Hebrew 360 days, then you're not going to get this right. And it's very important to do that. Because remember, he was writing to the Jews. So he would have used the 360-day calendar, not the Roman calendar that many of us, or that all of us use today. So now we see that from 445 uh, B.C., we then go uh, 49 years. So there's seven weeks, 49 years Okay, and we, then we end up at 396 B.C. So the, the city was rebuilt and was completed about the year 396 B.C. It actually comes out to 396.7 B.C. So probably along the lines of August or September of 396, if you're thinking about in terms of our Roman calendar. We then get on down, so we understand that now we have these 49 years that have been accomplished, that, that was from the moment the, the building of the city was to begin to the end of the building of city. Verse 25, I want to keep you here. It says, will be seven weeks. But then what about the other 63? 
Well, next it mentions 62 weeks. So we have the 49 weeks. The city is rebuilt. Now we need to begin the clock of the 62 weeks. So you would take 62 times 7, and that's going to give you 434 years. Okay, you have to do a little tweaking there because of the 360-day years. So 434 years from the time the city was rebuilt until, did you hear what it said, until an anointed one, in verse 25, the ruler. So in other words, you have uh, 49 years of the rebuilding of the city. Then you have 434 years of Israel history. At the end of the 434 years, you have the anointed one. Now, when you, when you measure that out on the timeline, you get to the year 32 A.D. 32 A.D. Well, we know, and the atheists and all that are trying to change the way we determine our calendar now, if you've noticed. Now what they'll do is they'll say B.C.E. for um, times before the year zero, and they'll do C.E. for after the year zero. What they're trying to do is they're trying to take Christ out of the equation, if you haven't understood that. B.C., which is what I still use and I always will use, before Christ. Basically, our entire calendar is based upon Jesus' life, by the way. So even atheists, when they say this is year 2021, they're going to have to admit it's 2,021 years since Christ. And that's exactly what that means. A.D., Adonai Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So A.D., B.C., it's all about Jesus Christ. Okay. But anyways, when we get to the year 32 A.D., in the year of our Lord, 32 A.D., we understand that Jesus would have been almost 33 years old at that point. Scholars talk about the fact that um, he might have been born in 3 B.C. Some say 2, some say 1, some say um, 1 A.D., whatever it may be. But anyways, if this calendar is figured out based upon the 360 days per year on the Hebrew calendar, you come to the year 32 A.D., which is the end of 483 years. Okay, So 483 years since the decree of the temple to be rebuilt to the point where Jesus is now riding into Jerusalem on a donkey about to be crucified. Did you hear what verse 25 said? From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed, until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks. You go on down in verse 26. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off. Wow, that sounds a lot like the crucifixion, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like the death of the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who was prophesied all the way back from Genesis 3.15 and will have nothing. It says, The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. So here we have 434 years since the city's rebuilt to the cutting off of the anointed one, 32 A.D., we then go on down and we see that not only that will come, but there will be a coming ruler in verse 26 that will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know that in history, in the year 70 AD, the Roman Empire destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed what is known as Herod's temple. So now all of that prophecy has been fulfilled, but we're only at 463 years. Remember, the original prophecy was 70 weeks, which is 490 years. So where are those other seven weeks? Where are those other seven years gone? Where are they? We understand there that as we get in deeper, we're going to begin to find that those seven weeks have not yet occurred. Now, in our understanding of Scripture, we know that the Old Testament deals specifically with the nation of Israel. 
So from the promise that Abraham received from God, where God came to him in Genesis 12, and he said, I, will, I promise you that your seed will be as the sand of the seashore and as the stars of the sky. Nations will be blessed by you. Those who curse you will be cursed. Those who bless you will be blessed. We know that that was the promise that God made to Abraham and that he fulfilled that promise through his son Isaac. We also understand that the culmination of that promise was the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the city of Bethlehem by the Virgin Mary. That the reason the world was blessed through the seed of Abraham was because the Lord Jesus Christ is a descendant of Abraham. That we have the lineage in both Matthew and Luke of how from Abraham to Jesus you have a continuous successive lineage. So now we understand that indeed Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the blessing that was given to Abraham, but that in the Old Testament, God dealt exclusively with the nation of Israel. We then get through the four Gospels, and we start to see Paul and Peter winning Gentiles to Jesus. Well, at the moment that Jesus died and rose again, the dispensation of law, that Old Testament period, ended. And we see in the book of Acts that is the birthplace of the New Testament church. It is the beginning of another time period known as the dispensation of grace. And in the dispensation of grace where we are right now, God is dealing with the church. In other words, our churches are made up of Jews and Gentiles across the world. There are saved Jews, there are saved Gentiles, and we are worshiping Jesus together. We are the universal church. Well, during this time period, God is dealing with the church God is moving in the church to the Great Commission to see sinners saved in the culmination of the rapture. Now, once the rapture takes place, the church is taken out of the picture. The church is gone. The church is no longer in the equation here on earth anymore. And you begin a new period of time, the seven-year tribulation, where God begins to deal with the nation of Israel again. So basically what's happened here is you have 483 years of this prophecy that take pla takes place that God is dealing with the Jews. You then have this big gap, which is known as a dispensation of grace, where he's dealing with the church. The church will be taken to heaven, and the 483 years starts again. And the clock begins ticking again for those final seven years of the 70 weeks of Daniel, known as the tribulation period. So here we have a definite time frame. We know that the tribulation is going to be seven years. And if you look at the Hebrew calendar, it's technically 6.8 years of, of probably our time. But it's a seven-year period. So here we have the time frame, which is very, very important to remember. The second thing that I want you guys to know about the tribulation, and I know smoke's coming out of your ears, so I, I know this is a lot and believe me, I was a little stressed out about this sermon because I was like, this is so much information and i got to do it in 30 minutes. So the second part is this, the focus of the tribulation. So we have the length of the tribulation, seven years. It's very clearly laid out in Scripture. But now we're going to have the focus. And the focus is important because it keeps us situated and understanding and grounded in the Word. So if you will, turn over to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. We're going to look in verses 1 and 2 there. So beginning in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 12, the Bible says this. At that time, Michael the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. 
But at the time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace. I want you to understand that the theme and the focus of the tribulational period is the nation of Israel. It is about the nation of Israel. It is about a completion of prophecy and a sealing of prophecy of what God began way back with Abraham. You may think, well, it's a time of judgment, Ben. Is God really going to put his people, the nation of Israel, through this great time of judgment? Yes. And I want to be clear here because this is a question that commonly comes up. Just because someone is Jewish does not mean they're going to heaven. Even Jewish people must accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior by faith, just like us. So there is no distinguishing between Jews and Gentiles in terms of salvation. It is by faith, okay? By faith. I'm sorry, by grace through faith. So here we understand the tribulation is about the nation of Israel. So let's not make it about anything else. The children of Israel are at the focal point. We understand this for, for a few different reasons. Number one, if you go back to the 70 weeks in Daniel 9, you understand that God is making this prophecy about, he says, your people when he's talking to Daniel. We understand that that is a prophecy about the nation of Israel. So the full 70 weeks are going to include a prophecy about the nation of Israel, not the Gentiles. We also see here in Daniel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, that the great prince Michael, Michael the archangel as we know him, one of the very few angels mentioned by name in scripture, his uh, job, his greatest responsibility as an angel is to watch over your people in verse 1. He's talking to Daniel, okay, as God's given this vision to Daniel. He's saying the Michael archangel is one who watches over your people. So in other words, as Michael has a big part to play in the tribulation, you're going to see him mentioned a few times throughout the book of Revelation. You understand that the reason he has such a big part to play in the tribulational period is because he is the watchman over the nation of Israel. And he's going to have a big part to play in how all these things in the tribulation period come about and play out. So the covenant he will make will be with many. We understand that is whenever they're talking about the covenant in uh, Daniel 9, when you go back and look at that, there is a covenant that the man known as the Antichrist is going to make with the nation of Israel during the seven-year period of time. And, and again, we're focusing on Israel here. And the reason we're focusing on Israel is because they are the focal point. So re- basically, Jerusalem, during the tribulation period, is going to be a hotbed. And we know it already is. We know it's already a place where all different religions of the world want control over it. Um, Even now on the Temple Mount where the original temple was built, there is currently standing a Muslim mosque known as the Dome of the Rock. So right now there is a Muslim mosque on the site of the original temple. And we know too that the Bible teaches that the temple is going to be used and destroyed again one day. So that means that there is going to have to be another temple built at some point on the Temple Mount. And that's why a lot of people around the world are always watching Israel to see What's going to happen with that Muslim mosque, and when is the new temple going to begin to be built? So there's a lot of neat things happening there, but again, we're talking about Israel. Daniel 9.27 says this, He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. So here we see that there is going to be a covenant that the Antichrist is going to make with the nation of Israel, a covenant of peace. So the first three and a half years of the tribulation is going to be peaceful. He's going to be very charismatic, the Antichrist. He's going to be a human being who is fully possessed by Satan. 
by Lucifer. He is a knockoff and a counterfeit of Jesus. He's the Antichrist. Jesus is God, but he's also man. He's fully man and fully God. Satan can't achieve something like this because he's a created being and he's limited. So his kind of answer to Jesus Christ is fully possessing a human being and, and, and working through that human body. So that's what the Antichrist will be, a human being just like us, but fully possessed by Satan and fully controlled by Satan. So he's going to make this little promise with Israel to try to keep them calm, to keep them quiet, until he consolidates his worldwide power and is then able to fully assume his position on the throne in the temple in Jerusalem, known as the abomination of desolation. So the end essentially will be the pouring out of wrath on the one who makes desolate the place of God. And we see that as well in Daniel chapter 9. Matthew chapter 24, verse 16. If you want some um, supporting scripture for this time period, Matthew 24 is a great place to go. Jesus' words as Jesus is reaffirming the prophecy that is to come. In uh, Matthew 24, 16, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Again, talking about the nation of Israel during that time. Matthew 24, 20 says, pray that your escape may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Here Jesus is saying that during the tribulation, Israel, at the moment that the Antichrist turns on you, you must pray that you must not run from the Antichrist in the winter because essentially you'll freeze to death. Or make sure it's not on the Sabbath because you're not going to have food to take with you. Again, the fact that he uses the term Sabbath is again speaking to the fact that he's talking to the nation of Israel. That would only mean something to them. Matthew chapter 24 verse 22 says this, Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved, talking about the tribulation. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. Who are the elect? They're the nation of Israel. Those who have been chosen by God and accepted Christ during that horrific and terrible time. So there we have that second point, the focus of the tribulation. So now we've got the length of the tribulation. We've got the focus of the tribulation, which is the nation of Israel. And lastly, what I want us to see is the events of the tribulation. So I'm going to tell you every event in the tri- in tribulation in four minutes. No, I'm just kidding. I might go over a little bit if that's okay with y'all. I've never asked permission before, but I, I may start today. So the events of the tribulation are what we're going to look at as well. So in football... How many of you in here like the Dallas Cowboys? Anybody like the Dallas Cowboys? Well, I don't, so I'll just start out with that. But, but you got to respect them. My brother-in-law, Nick, his hands held high there, Cowboys fan. But you got to respect them, especially in the 90s. You know, many may say that a good defense is what wins championships. You ever heard that? You know, defense, a good defense wins championships. I'm going to have to disagree on that, though. And y'all may call me crazy, but just listen, hear me out. What wins championships is an excellent front line, offensive front line. So back in the 90s, the Dallas Cowboys won three Super Bowl titles, okay? And the first people you're going to think about on those teams were Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, and Emmitt Smith, right? Those were the superstars of the team. But I'm going to argue that those guys could not have done anything they did without their offensive front line. The front line holds back the defense that gives the quarterback time to throw the ball, keeps the halfback from getting uh, tackled five yards behind the line, blocks and makes holes so the team can progress forward to score. The names of the offensive linemen on Dallas's team when they were so good, Mark Tooney, Eric Williams, Mark Stepnoski, Nate Newton, John Gasick, and Kevin Gogan. They sound familiar to y'all? They didn't me either until I looked it up, by the way. They were the unsung heroes of the Super Bowl. But I would argue that they would not have won without that front line. 
There's one who's the unsung hero in the Trinity. We don't always talk about him. We don't talk about him a lot, but he's the Holy Spirit. And right now, the Holy Spirit is our offensive line. Because what he's doing is he is holding back the spirit of the Antichrist. He is holding back an absolute all-out assault of wickedness on this planet. He is our unsung hero, and he is our offensive lineman. In John chapter 15, verse 26, the Bible says this, When the Counselor comes, capital C there, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You know why the Holy Spirit is so often an unsung hero? It's because he never talks about himself. He's always testifying about the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 15, 26. He's out there doing all these miraculous things, fulfilling the will of the Father in heaven about the end of times and the sealing of the prophecy and the sealing of the judgment of this planet. He's doing that work right now as we speak. You say, Ben, could the world really get worse than it is right now? Yes. It could get a lot worse. But right now, we've got our offensive lineman, the Holy Spirit, holding those things back. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. These are very important verses, and I would encourage you to underline them if you haven't already. It says in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 2, And you know what currently restrains him, talking about Satan, so that he will be revealed in his time. In other words, something's restraining the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist, so that he will not be revealed too soon. Verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. Right there, the Holy Spirit is spoken of. The Holy Spirit is standing in the way of all-out judgment on this planet. But there's going to come a time when he's taken out of the way. There's going to come a time when that restraint is no longer there and all of hell breaks loose on this planet where Satan himself will embody a human being and will unleash wickedness like you've never seen before. But the Holy Spirit must be taken out of the way first. You know how that's going to happen? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, guess who lives within you? The Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. When the rapture takes place, the Holy Spirit will be removed because he's in us. Because he does his work through believers. When the rapture takes place, we're taken out and all hell begins to break loose in that seven-year tribulation. He's in the way now, but one day he'll get out of the way. But did you hear the end of that verse there? The Lord Jesus will destroy him. We know that the end of the seven-year tribulation, there is coming a great battle where Satan will be finally destroyed. So as we look through the tribulation period, there's a few different things that I want to highlight very quickly. Number one is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, as you go through the book of Revelation, you're going to get to certain parts where there's plagues spoken of. Whether it's trumpets or seals or bowls, there's sets of seven that run through the book of Revelation. And they all speak to different judgments that are going to befall the human race. But in the midst of these judgments, you have these scenes in heaven. It's almost like an interlude. It's almost like... You know, the earth is being just ravaged and destroyed, but hang on, let's go to heaven for a minute and see what's going on up there while this is going on. Well, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 10, the Bible says this, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. 
She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Did you know you're a saint today if you know Jesus? Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. He was an angel and he did not want him worshiping him. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, it is the consummation of our marriage with Jesus. The Bible teaches us in Ephesians chapter 5, for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's saying that because when you become saved and you accept Jesus, you literally become part of the bride of Christ. And right now we're still living in our sinful state and our sinful nature in these sinful bodies. We've not yet been glorified, but there's going to come a day when our marriage with Jesus is consummated at the marriage feast of the Lamb. That is when we, all after the rapture takes place, we'll be able to sit around the table with the Lamb of God and we'll have this great feast that will celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our king, our groom, and we will celebrate the fact that we are beginning our eternal marriage with him in heaven. In reality, that is what marriage, earthly marriage, is to symbolize. It's to symbolize the relationship that we as believers have with our groom, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, that great marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's a bright spot in the tribulation. We don't know exactly when during the seven-year period it will, it will happen, but it'll be sometime after the rapture, and that is certainly something that we can look forward to. Another difficult thing that's going to happen during the tribulation is the abomination of desolation. You're going to find that in Daniel chapter 9. You're also going to find that in Matthew chapter 24. What that is, is that is when the temple of God will be desecrated by Satan. In other words, in, in three and a half years within the tribulation, which is spoken of, that three and a half point in Daniel chapter 9. Actually, let's read that real quick. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. Let's read that quickly there. Verse 27, 927. So during the seven-year tribulation, there's going to be a halfway mark. And a lot of things are going to start happening at that halfway mark. It says, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, which will be three and a half years into the seven-year period, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. So remember, the understanding is that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and that worship is going to begin again for the Hebrew people. They're going to be able to continue back their sacrifices as they did in the Old Testament. But at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the Antichrist is going to let them do that for three-and-a-half years. But then at that mark, he's going to run in and he's going to say, No more. You are not sacrificing to the God of heaven anymore. You're going to start worshiping me. And the Antichrist will stop the sacrificing of the temple. He will set up his throne in the temple of God in Jerusalem, and he will rule the world from that temple for three and a half years. That is known as the abomination of desolation. Well, you, go, you go on through, and at the point the abomination of desolation takes place, the first three and a half years of peace in the tribulation are gone now. That's when it all breaks loose. And then you start to see in uh, Revelation the seven seals. They were basically um, uh, judgments, an overview of judgments in the tribulation. You then get to that first scene in heaven where it talks about the 144,000 Jews who are actually um, Jewish evangelists. These men will be covering the planet, preaching the gospel of Jesus during the tribulation. There will be people who get saved during the tribulation period, by the way. 
but it will be through a miraculous power of God because there will be such great deception during that time. So if your plan, your backup plan is, is, well, if I don't make the rapture, I'll just get saved in the tribulation, that's not a good plan. I'm just going to tell you. There will be such a great deception then that if you miss the mark in this life, you probably won't have the opportunity in the tribulation. But there will be some. And these 144,000 Jews will be preaching the gospel. Every single one of them will die as a martyr for that um, faith during the tribulation. You then get past that, you see the seven trumpets. Um, four of those are specific judgments on the earth. The last two are signifying a great release of demonic forces on the earth. Then you have three woes that are mentioned throughout. You see those beginning in uh, Revelation 8.13. Again, these are pointing to great releases of demonic activity on the planet. One point you see where the, the pit is opened up and locusts fly out and just plague mankind. Well, those are demons. Those are demonic forces that are exercising pure wickedness on the people who are still on the earth during the Great Tribulation. You get to another scene in heaven where you start to see in Revelation 10 a giant angel. That he carries a book. And also you're going to see two witnesses that are going to appear during the tribulation period. These witnesses have characteristics of Old Testament saints, Moses and Elijah. One is able to stop it from raining. The other one is able to initiate plagues on the earth. Some people believe that these two witnesses in Revelation 10 are indeed Moses and Elijah coming back. And what will happen is they will be murdered in the streets. It says that the whole world will watch as their dead bodies lay there for three and a half days. Three and a half days later, it says that they will rise, that they'll be resurrected so the whole world can see their resurrection. Very interesting, something to study. You see another woe in uh, Revelation eleven fourteen, another uh, place of demonic activity being released. You then get into the seven signs. So it's kind of like, you know, you got the, the seals and the trumpets and the signs. They kind of spiral into each other as successive judgments on the earth. The seven signs um, are linked to seven characters who will play a big part in the end of times. You see there Jesus is mentioned, Michael the archangel, the antichrist, the beast, the false prophet. There in the seven signs. You get to another scene in heaven where you see the tribulation saints and the 144,000 Jews and they're all preparing for the great battle of Armageddon which is going to be the act that ends the seven year tribulation which we're going to talk about next week. You then get into seven bowls which is a fourth set of sevens speaking about more judgments. The final bowl of the seven is the battle of Armageddon where the armies of the Antichrist are definitively defeated by Jesus Christ himself. But I want to end this whole sermon this way. And I hope I've maybe spurred something in you where you want to learn more about this. It is certainly important. And remember, when Brother Tim teaches that class, it's an excellent way to dig deeper. But I want to end this sermon today with this because I want to leave you encouraged. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. You know why Christians, us who live here today, who know Jesus, will not go into the tribulation? Because there is no condemnation in those who know Jesus Christ. There is no judgment left for us. Jesus absorbed our judgment on the cross. He took our shame. He took our humiliation. He took our beating. He took our death. And he fully paid it all. So there's no judgment left for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when he saves, he saves to the uttermost. So it would not make sense for saints to go into a period of judgment, would it? 
Because Jesus took our judgment for us. So today you can be encouraged. And you may be sitting there today and you say, Ben, I don't know for sure if when I die I'm going to go to heaven. I don't know for sure if the rapture were to take place today, if I'd be left behind or if I would go with the rest of the saints. The Bible teaches this, and I use this verse all the time, that if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Today, you can know that you know that you know that if the rapture comes or if you get in a car wreck or if you have an unexpected illness, regardless, your eternity is settled and there is therefore now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray.